don't know how that's slipped through our fingers. It seems crazy. You 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 came to Kent and you'd said hello and we we just somehow it's yeah, okay. missed it's, it. It's no worries. I feel like when we're meant to connect and meet, we're meant to connect and meet. And and honestly, I I was so busy with, with university and I was there for a short period of time um, because I ended up leaving for Ukraine um, after just January, March, I think April or so, like classes were finishing up. So I ended up leaving and um, so no worries, but, but thank you for getting in touch when you did. <laughs> yeah, so we, well, we got there kind of we've, we've got there in the end <laughs> so um it, it sounds exciting your, your your trip to the ukraine how how was it because you've got you've got ukrainian ancestry is that right yeah yeah so so um my grandparents came from ukraine from western ukraine um three of them um just after the world war ii like uh they were displaced peoples and um a lot of the areas that they were living in were just completely bombed out and and yeah, they have very like tragic and, and really heartbreaking stories of how they, they came to the US. Um, yeah. And then my one grammar is from Germany. And so a large part of, um, you know, me coming to the UK during these strange times too was was the hopes to be to actually like go to Ukraine for the first time. Um, I was supposed to go with my grandma right. when I was younger, but it didn't happen. And, and uh, I was like, you know what? I want to go to Europe. I want to to be able to to be in the UK for some time, and then and then be able to um, go to Ukraine. and And it was incredible. It was really, yeah. really wonderful. Have you been? I have. I I went to um, I went to it's it's Kiev, isn't it? The main yeah yeah the main. So I flew there, mm -hmm. and uh, because a friend was getting married to a Ukrainian lady. Mm -hmm. So I went to the wedding, but um, I was the best man. Oh, you were very was... much involved with the wedding. <laughs> well, you know, I had I had responsibilities that I was in no way qualified to fulfil, because I was the best man is supposed to get people dancing after the wedding. <laughs> obviously, not just any old dancing. It's like specific park and like different types. I don't know, yeah, but, but whatever it was, I was supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah, I was still quite sort of told off by people saying you're not doing your job. <laughs> oh, so no. yeah, so it's like, aren't you going to get people dancing? <laughs> so that's quite funny. Was it a traditional wedding, or was it um, like what was the wedding like? Was it more kind of modern, or or was it? I know like more in the mountain areas, people are so drawn to more traditions, but sometimes those are taken into the city with different like. I guess ritual with like um, you know presenting certain breads, the korovai or something like that. And I'm just curious how this one was in cave. I I feel like a barbarian because I can't. I'm sure there were details that were traditional. I'm sure there were. But but I was, did you notice like any like embroidery, like something like um, I don't I don't know if like the groom, if there was like a slight embroidery, or like on the table, if there was like um, just yeah, just like embroidered cloths or something like this. Because I feel. Like if anything, maybe there's something like that. Or... I think there probably was, you know, but mm -hmm. I'm afraid my memory for those kind of details is pretty shocking. Um, oh, it's all good. I, you know, well, while I was there, though, I was very much interested in in weddings and and how um, yeah. traditional foods were used and and different types of like mushrooms and and just in general, like um, what what things looked like. And so um, 
you know, it very much ranged. I, I was in Kiev for a short period of time, but then I went to Lviv. Um, and then I was in like Kolomea area, like within the mountains. And um, it was more like with like the Hutzel tradition where it was directly tied still to the land and, and could be more traditional in, in the sense of stereotypical um, traditional weddings, I guess, that, that I grew up seeing. But <laughs> yeah, so very cool. You got to experience one firsthand. <laughs> what I do know is that the, um, the family was still doing a lot of uh, wild harvesting and preserving like the, this um my friend's wife um her mother had you know a cellar full of jars of lacto-fermented things and um, and so on so did you um, get a chance to in Kiev like did you visit a dacha um the the like second home out in kind of a little bit more the country area where people grow more of their food and stuff I don't know exactly where we were I know that we flew into Kiev and then we were out yeah. Yeah, you know, we were out in a village somewhere. Okay. So you know, it was it was rural Ukraine, and and uh, it did did feel like there's still those kind of traditions. But mm. but all the more powerful for you knowing that you were. Did did you actually get to meet your um your relatives while you were there? Did you? Yes, yeah. I found them, and it was okay. like straight out of the movie because right. we knew yeah. about them but didn't know like where exactly there were like who was still alive and who was there wow. yeah. and it was literally just talking to um people in churches like the older women like asking if they knew I, I wanted to see where my grandparents lived um their homes more than anything too and and um you know just asked you know if they if they knew like Lavrin and they kind of looked at me and and can obviously like my Ukrainian is is there but like my endings sometimes are incorrect and you know and I look different, my, my body is different, you know, too, in, in size and shape and stuff. And, and it was kind of interesting, um, you know, them kind of looking at me and then being like, oh yeah. And they, they literally walked me to my, um, my grandpa's home that he grew up in that now his, his nephew was staying in. And what was wild, um, Miles, was that I, I came in and, and this, this older woman presented me almost like uh, Ivan. Ivan, your family is here from America, <laughs> you know, and Ukrainian and stuff. And he came out, he's like, Shoshua, like, what's going on? And and um, it was just remarkable where he's like, what? And then and then I was very uncertain because I was I I was I felt kind of like that like eat, pray, love scenario or something where I'm just like showing up somewhere and I'm like, I, I don't know if this is I don't know fully who this is. And um I wasn't fully convinced and a little bit like guarded but present and there and it felt very strange and then um mm -hmm. he he teared up and he was like are you Olech's or Ihor's and and my dad's name is Olech and my uncle's name is Ihor and then I knew that he knew me and and he ended he was he held me when I was a baby because they came to visit the U.S. and like wow. all these stories right and it just it was really incredible and every single family had a, a, a story like that you know finding my other grandpa's sister who like the minute she saw me because I was supposed to go with my other grandpa when I was a teenager and you know with the different turmoil in Ukraine like my, my folks weren't um, comfortable with me going and and my Ukrainian was still choppy and they're just like nope it's too dangerous you're not going and I was heartbroken but I was determined like I'm gonna go one day <laughs> and here I am you know 16 years later <laughs> showing up at my 
my grandpa's home where his sister lives she saw me and broke down crying and she knew immediately she's like Nina and like Nina you finally came to us Nina and like and just started sobbing and and it was just and she's up in the mountain areas in Ukraine so it was also an adventure to get up there and to like figure that out <laughs> so yeah it was really it was it was wonderful and I I hope you know to be able to go back and and um who knows Miles and I'm over there too if you ever want to go mushroom hunting in, in the Karpate it would be wonderful to to have some uh company and and introduce you to a bunch of foragers yeah. too in in the mountain area but so of course you weren't just there to meet your relatives you were you were, you were doing this that was your dissertation for the ethnobotany yeah. masters that you were doing at university of kent yes yeah. So I so I was actually finishing up. Um, that was just like a cherry on top where I, I didn't know if I'd find my family or not, but I was like, let's try. Um, yeah. But I was I was my my dissertation was on um, ecological knowledge retention across three generations of of Ukrainian immigrants, um, particularly here in Detroit. Um, so so my family, the friends, the community that I grew up with. Um, my dissertation was supposed to have more of a comparative with. Um, you know, the families within Ukraine as well. But at the time of me leaving, I was very much discouraged for traveling, obviously, with COVID and um, the, the university, I think, too, with, with not wanting to take up liabilities should anything happen. You know, it, it was it was a very gray area, um, but I just knew in my heart, like I had I had to go and I went. And then when I landed, I, I let my poor professor know I was like, I made it. And he was like, how did you do that? <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was really, it was, it was great. And it was, I understood more of my childhood, more of like the foods, the customs I grew up with in along the backdrop of, um, Ukraine and, and the different areas and, and how unique, uh, people's like cultural relationship is with certain plants and foods, depending on, uh, what they have access to and what they're growing. And, um, yeah, it was, it was amazing, like how language also played such a role which i'm very curious to hear more about like what your observations have been too like even in the uk um with different areas with with foods and if if you've seen this as well um but for instance like blueberries um you know there was like four or five different names for blueberry um and it was based on if it was like grown in the home and like what seed it was or if it was wild if it was from like the the mountains if it was bought in the market and so there's all these different names that were circulating and, and were very specific to like region and area which i didn't expect it just like blew my my mind you know and i wouldn't have known that unless i was i was there and like having people like explain to me like like i'm like wait a minute um say it again like that's blueberry what about this and and so it was really a fascinating, um, eye-opening experience to see people's uh, deep relationships with the process of harvesting yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, with regards to blueberries in this country, we, we, I mean, we don't have names for blueberries under different conditions or anything, but, but there are other regional variations. I don't know if you'd have come across that, but we have like, so, I don't think anyone really calls them wild blueberries, although if you were trying to explain it to someone, you'd say that's what they are. So they're either bilberries, windberries, wortleberries, blaberries, <laughs> or um, I think frown is the is the Irish. And in, in, in Ireland, they have a, a frown Sunday. Well, at least they did. I'm not sure if they still do, but um, frown Sunday, you'll eat a blueberry pie. 
and every and and which and every Sunday? No, one Sunday of the year. I couldn't tell you without looking up when it is. But okay. so those those are the those are the reasonable, and that's that's quite fun because they'll still be in place. Mm -hmm. So if you're talking about them, uh, I forget where is where. Blaybury is Scottish. Um, yeah, yeah, I couldn't tell you. But we've got Win Winbury's, Wardleberries, and 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 Bilberries as well. And just ordinary people would still call it that, but, but that's quite something for the UK because most of our um, traditional ecological knowledge, as, as you're describing it, um, is gone, you know, because, because we were industrialised so early, all the people were shuttled into towns and, um, and we lost it. So, yeah, we're... Um... But can I ask you too, like, more in terms of, like, your own journey, because, like, like an internationally renowned, you know, wild food um, harvester. And I, I, I did get a chance to be able to look to see like with your history with like your grandfather um, that yeah. sparked that interest. So how did, how did I, you know, yeah, but that again is become who you are. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think just, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't traditional knowledge. Definitely. Like mm -hmm. the, just, just, I had um, this nature connection thing through both my grandfather and my father. So I think, you know, my father primed me for it. We lived in, in the city of Birmingham, but he would come home from, an, he worked a night shift at the university and he'd see foxes or hedgehogs or something and he'd come home and tell us about it. So okay. we're just getting up, he's just got home and, and he'd tell us about the, 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 the fox he saw or the hedgehog or the this or that. So you just caught that that sense of complete delight, childlike delight and wonder at, at seeing things. And, you know, and he got like tadpoles in a small aquarium, but with plants and things. So we could watch them turning into frogs. And I was afraid of little insects and worms and things as a very small child. And he just put them in a, in a small tin. Mm -hmm. And that, that got me over my fear, you know? So, so mm -hmm. my dad was just, giving me that exposure to mm -hmm. to natural things and and his curiosity and and uh, yeah sense of wonder and delight would have been communicated and then when my granddad took me out mushroom picking when we moved to Suffolk and we were staying at his place that just got me hooked in in one that was the occasion that did it for me like um um but nothing to do with traditional knowledge. Just, just my granddad had bought a little book, which funnily enough, I've just bought that book. Um, I've never had a copy of it, but I, I knew what it was called. I just bought a tatty old copy of this edible fungi book, okay. which was so basic. It's, it's got like 10 species in it or something. Um, and, and just no photographs, they're all just, but color illustrations. But he had, he had learned those out of curiosity and interest himself. So no, no tradition. Just, just like maybe a bit of um, like he made elderberry wine, but again, I'm sure he, it's possible he learned that from from someone in his family. And my grandmother was a great jam maker, so she'd do lots of jams with nice. standard things. So there was, you know, elderberry and elderflower wine. But um, is your background too primarily like based within um, within England or? Um, uh, well. Mm -hmm. I've, I've been overseas and done foraging stuff but my, most of yeah my practice has been here or, or uh, with your with your ancestry oh I see I see what you mean yeah so my mother's Welsh mm -hmm. my mother was Welsh um 
and yeah, my, my dad's family was um, kind of English, had lived in Scotland at one point, but, but I think basically English. Um, um, so yeah, ancestry, all pretty much white, European, English, Scottish, yeah, Welsh. But, um, but actually my mum had more tradition in, you know, like my mum had learned wild plants when she was a kid. Um, but she, just didn't pass it on. Flower, she learned flower parts. Uh, what did you say? I'm sorry. No, no, she just she would have known like sorrel and and okay. um and hawthorn leaves. Mm -hmm. And when we went up uh to to visit her mother, there was you know wild there was always wild strawberries. And and not long before she died, actually, my mum told me how they used to harvest the, the strawberries if you were out. What her mother showed her. So this was traditional knowledge. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What her mother showed her was was you're picking little wild strawberries, which are just, you know, they're, they're tiny, mm -hmm. tiny, yeah. And you get a nice stiff bit of um, grass and you just thread them on and you go home with your piece of grass with just like beads all the way down it. With a little the... strawberry bracelet. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, no, just straight. You wouldn't, it wouldn't be a bracelet. Uh -huh. you would bend it. Just, you'd, you'd just have that to, because okay. it would keep them all safe and sound and then you'd maybe put that down and fill another one and 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 you'd go home with a few of these and that's how you'd take them home without them if you hadn't got a little pot with you or something so that was lovely that's um, really smart but that's my one piece of traditional ecological knowledge but from my mother's side and and she didn't tell me it even all the years i was you know learning foraging and and, and stuff she didn't say oh i'll tell you a story about my mum. no i I had to kind of wheedle it out. I just kept asking her questions about strawberries one day, and and, that, and I got that out. So yeah, there you go. That's one more, my one bit of traditionally classical knowledge. I love it. It's very smart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I can't tell you how many times. I mean, at least in Ukraine, what they would do. I, I guess like this was through observation, where I was just thinking, if I didn't have this bucket, but they had this like kind of like rope that you would tie across your um waste and then you'll have this bucket the small bucket a little pail that you'll just go ahead and and collect the strawberries and while it's yeah. like hanging there so you so you have free hands and you know the way that like the strawberries grew too it was like definitely need both hands to kind of crawl around as well and and it was on the side yeah. of a lot of slopes there in, in the mountains and so um but i don't know i just i, I wouldn't even even thought like so maybe more of like I'm just trying to imagine like the grass like is a little bit like stiffer or something like that. So it's almost like a like a kebab or something, or it's like literally yeah. you could yeah, yeah no, like no, that stiff like that. Yeah, stiff okay. enough to 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 pierce the berries so you can push it right down mm. and put another one on top and another one on top and another one on top. I yeah. like it because now yeah. I'll always remember that because I I have had like smushed berries like or in my my backpack or something and yeah. it's just smushed and so i love it <laughs> so you then have just been able to just carry them home like that mm-hmm mm -hmm. yeah very cool it's really good i mean regarding those the, the 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 thing that you pick into we we saw people in romania with with these baskets um mm -hmm. that you strap around i'm struggling to think though whether they were on their back or on their front mm -hmm. maybe you could do both i can't remember we 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 bought one, but I couldn't get into it. I I tried using it, but we were just so in the habits of how we pick. I just couldn't get into using this this thing. But that's how everybody out there was foraging or harvesting. It wasn't just for foraging. How do you like to harvest? Uh oh, just in just into bags. It depends what it is. If 
if it's mushrooms, uh, I'll take just fruit crates because you can stack them and, and, and not too many mushrooms in each one. So after you've filled one, you stack the next one and, and you're not going to crush anything. And also they're great for dropping the spores out. And then um, what I'd like to say about that is that, you know, you've had a good day when you're walking out of the forest and you can't really see where you're going because you, you, you're carrying, you're carrying the <laughs> there above your head, you know, so that's a good day. It's a very um, good day. Can I but, ask you though too, you mentioned something about, um, in terms of mushrooms, you said at first you were, you were saying foxes and hedgehogs and there was a quick moment that I was like, it's either the animal or you're referring to the mushroom. And so I guess my, my quick question was, um, so, so we, in the States, like we go with the French and just say like chanterelles, um, whereas in Ukraine, they, they call chanterelles lisichkas, which is fox. And so when you said oh. it, I was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, these really, uh, these weren't hedgehog fungi and, and, a, and, a, and a funny, uh, yeah, Birmingham was where I was, Birmingham named for, for chanterelles. Now these were actual animals. Foxes and hedgehogs. Yeah. I caught on to it. I caught on to it, but it did spark that interest of like, wait, in England, do they call chanterelles as well, like foxes? Is was that like another like name for yeah. it? Because then I was like, is or is this just like a very like Ukrainian thing where they call them little foxes? <laughs> yeah. Although, yeah, I mean, the animals do. So, like the the badgers, um, are often often leave their claw marks on the especially on the porcini and so on, you, you, you'll see porcini or other mushrooms knocked over, but porcini, because they're so spongy, they, mm -hmm. they retain the marks mm -hmm. a lot more than something like a rustula, a brittle gill. You know, they'll just knock that over. You won't see. Yeah. But like you can see if it's a badger or a squirrel that did it based on how far apart the lines are, you know. Oh, that's fascinating. They yeah. Why they do that and then don't eat it all, I don't know, but, uh, but they do. <laughs> Only, only for um, sorry, uh, with, with only on the porcinis. Porcini or other other beliefs. They, okay. They're just, they're just a bit more soft and spongy. They. Yeah. All... Maybe they like the sensation or something. I don't know. That's <laughs> interesting. Okay. Wait, they definitely do eat them. Squirrels and badgers definitely okay. eat both. Both. Uh, both of them eat the porcini and, and other mushrooms. So. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So, but you're talking about when you go to Ukraine to 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 to, uh, to do this research it's it's actually personal to you because these are foods that you grew up eating at least something similar in in america because your family was still very much kind living their culture yeah yeah i i think in a certain extent like what i did notice throughout the research was that um i mean a lot of ecological knowledge um within communities in general too like that there has there is this very clear distinction between um, the mother and what she cooks within the home and the familiarity um, for future generations um, and for her kids and, and the familiarity of like the process, but also like what ingredients are used within it and if there's substitutions or if there's um, sticking to, to more like of an original um, process or, or species that was used um, within like Ukraine or within like the Karpate where like my mom was from. Um, and so it, it, it was interesting to see like across different families, whether like their mom or father 
um, you know, was from Ukraine or from another part of Europe or who were already um, considered American and um, how, how much of like both plant identification and food identification was accessible to um, different generations. And so for me, it was incredibly personal, <laughs> incredibly personal, mainly because while I grew up with a lot of these foods, um, you know, myself getting into, uh, you know, harvesting came from my experience with in Southern Africa and, and my family very much so was in, was maybe still also in the mindset of like, you know, we came to America, your grandparents came to America for a better life and livelihood and, and you buy food. Um, and certain certain mushrooms and certain now they're they're more accessible within the stores if you go like Whole Foods or something here in the states or if you're on the west coast a lot of different um, you know wild mushroom varieties are available but for the most part here in the Midwest um, unless you do go to like an ethnic store that has like more like uh, canned like the Polish stores here have canned um, mushrooms with like different slippery jack and chanterelles and all this we didn't grow up with that um, and so my question was like, why, why, like, where was that break in, in knowledge and in um, accessibility? And like, why did it happen the way it did? Um, when like my grandparents came, like my grandpa, you know, brought the black walnuts from uh, Ivano Frankios and from the Carpata there to be able to plant and, and he grew sour cherry trees and his blueberries and tomatoes and like took seeds from Ukraine to plant here. And like where and why did it break, you know, with my my parents' generation? And then how is it coming back now with me and even my siblings and and with you know the state, the world, and right now too? Like 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 why is it so passionate and interest for me? Um, but yeah, but a lot of a lot of my the beginnings of my, I guess, um, excitement about wild foods um, came when I was living in in. Uh, South Africa, but mainly when I was living in Namibia and was connected with the sun. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's another amazing story. Um, it's, there's a lot of incredible people, right? Like around the world that, that have a connection to the land. And, and my curiosity has definitely been like, there has been this narrative too with, with, you know, even like classmates within um, the UK, like studying and, and um, my one friend, she was from the Netherlands, and she's just like, there's a story, right, especially in European communities and cultures that maybe are more um, urbanized in some way, or, or I've, I'm not sure in what, how to describe it, but, but there's this narrative of like, well, this, this information, this knowledge is lost. And so my exploration is like, what does it mean that it's lost, and how does it get lost, and how does it like come back? And um, or not, or, or, um, you know, is, is there blending of, of different um, cultures and knowledge and, and what happens in that process, you know, and um, that's kind of just been more my, my curiosity and, and um, but there are some really amazing people um, who do amazing work and oddly enough, that same friend, you know, we were doing a lot more like work around like, like European descendants, especially for folks who immigrated, like, what is the process of, of learning more about um, how our ancestors, you know, during perhaps pagan times, during other times in life, like how, how things were used, you know, and it's, it's not easy and the, all the answers are not obviously present, 
Um, but oddly enough, like she was able to connect with a couple plant species that like she never really um, like with tulips, like she's like, oh no, it's just like an industrialized, um, you know, process. But then like when she started digging more into the history and everything, there was a lot of different, um, a lot of different emotions and a lot of different like accounts of like people eating like tulip like bulbs, even though it may not be like recommended as, as slightly toxic, but during times of famine. And, and there was a lot of these, these stories that like she um, was disconnected with. Um, but like, you know, she was able to, to interact with that um, species and with that plant in a different way after doing some of this investigative work. And so um, I think that's just kind of like at this point in my, my life right now too, is just like, why and how are things like lost and forgotten and how are they reclaimed? And, mm. and is that, um, you know, when is it appropriate to share? I think oftentimes too, like me living in the U US, like coming from um, indigenous uh, people in Ukraine, right? So the, the Hutsulski and, um, you know, the people in the mountains like are considered part of this like cultural like heritage within Ukraine. And within my ancestry, you know, parts of my family were displaced, but also parts of my family, my one grandma's from Germany, you know, and so there's a lot of interesting like shifts between like either like colonialism and, um, you know, people being shifted out of spaces and, and disconnected from um, the land. And then being now in the US and, you know, in the Midwest, like, you know, I, I travel across, right? Like Potawatomi land within Chicago area, Miami, Illinois, and then come up through um, to Michigan area, like with more like Ojibwe um, territory. And like, you know, how is it like when I know more about my own ancestry, my own history, I can share with people versus like all these conversations as well and rightfully so about appropriation and about taking and stuff. And so where's that like tension point where like we're able to share like our knowledge together and start creating these ecosystems together within our cities, within suburb areas and just being clear with like, you know, like I don't know it all. A lot of people don't know around, but there, there is this very like deep sadness and, and lack um, that's come from, from generations of trauma and being displaced from this connection. And so, I don't know, I think that's, it's, it's kind of the, the realm I've been exploring and um so i was curious even for yourself too like like with your ancestry and being in in the uk and and in england and um you know having parts of this like ecological knowledge and and being connected to the land and like how does that feel um and being able to share that knowledge through your education is i think is really empowering for a lot of people who've been missing it i know but i think some of the things you know um I mean, I guess I forget my mother's side of the family, partly because I had less contact with them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it is something I, could, I couldn't, sh you know, I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed, ashamed even, that I, I don't know a word of Welsh, because my mum was a, a Welsh speaker, Welsh language speaker solely, you know, until she was about five or six, she didn't speak a word of English. So mm -hmm. um, I kind of feel that that's something I've missed so far, you know, to, 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 to be able to contact the language of, of my mother's childhood and, and her ancestors who, who would have been solely mm -hmm. Welsh speaking. And I'm sure there's a lot of indigeneity in that language. Mm -hmm. um, 
But even then, you know, I'm, I'm embarrassed that I don't even have anything to say about that because I've, I've spent zero time even looking into it, let alone learning it. But I guess I'm more, because I had a lot more contact with my dad's side of the family, and that's a different story altogether. You know, some of, some of my uh, ancestors were colonialists, you know, in, in India and Malaysia and Hong Kong um, and Trinidad. So, you know, that's something I'm disgusted with and, and, and don't, you know, feel... Um, it's, you know, it's toxic heritage, you know, my, my family have been part of that. So, um, but, but on the other hand, looking at that, I, I would see that as, um, as rootlessness, you know, or on the one hand, there's, you know, roots I don't want to even think about, but, but, but on the other hand, it's, it's a lack of these kind of land-based roots. Mm -hmm. And I almost feel like, in a sense, what I represent is is uh, an example of, of, of the loss being found, you know, because, you know, without those roots, what, what, what are we to do, you know? Um, and and um, I think, well, we, we must do something, you know, we must find those roots again, you know, we must find a ground to stand on even though we don't belong anywhere. You know, like for me, it's a real dilemma. Like, I don't belong anywhere. I, I don't come from anywhere. I was born in, in Birmingham, but my parents weren't from there. The weird, the weird thing is that going back to Birmingham, I, I felt the sense of, of that being a place I belonged, you know, walking city streets and feeling this kind of earth connection when I had no language to describe that. I'm talking like when I was 23 or something. Um, and and it's, it wasn't thinking about land or connection to anything like that. But a strongest sense, you know, that, 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 that I had a connection with this place that I, it was where I came from. But... Um, but, you know, I think that's probably the most important thing that that we 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 um, you know, in the one sense, uh, people with the kind of story that I'm telling about myself are rootless, you know, um, and and yet, I guess I'm exploring how we can, um, you know, not actually, you know, I I don't accept the. Uh, the hopelessness that, that that might come from that. I don't. I don't accept the kind of therefore I cannot expect or hope um, to find a place in this beautiful creation and and in relation to other people who who do have um, more or less. You know, could be more or less. You know, but but like the the the, the, the thing that I'm. Um, convinced of is that we have everything that we need it's like a wound you know when you when you cut yourself you don't need to figure anything out you just have to create the right conditions don't let it get infected probably cover it up at least some of the time i mean you know for us foragers it's definitely stick some plantain on it yeah. or, or something like that but the point is yeah you can so you can get help um, so maybe I could explore this metaphor when I get to what I'm describing. Where's the plantain for this? But 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 like this this cultural wound that we've got that's that's defaced our um, heritage. However far back you have to go to discover that. You know, I mean, I think in in England, in a sense, it's the Mesolithic because like that's that's when our last hunter gatherers would have been here. But it's also the Enclosures Acts because you know the the people were on the land it might have been an agricultural paradigm with still a lot of hierarchy and control but they were on the land but anyway so we've got this cultural wound um 
And just like my hand will repair itself if it's cut, provided the right conditions are there, I think this wound will repair itself. And it comes from both sides. You know, it comes from what the what the, the earth calling, you know, this complexity of species calling because we've already had a relationship. We've always had a relationship. And then there's our own biology, but there's more than that. There's, there's something that, that remains in us, which is a still a, a cultural something, which 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 it's it is like bees to honey. You know, we we must go back. If if the things that are restraining us and blocking us and and making us look elsewhere, deluding us to look elsewhere, you know, if those things are removed, then then the conditions are there to to heal the wound. So I think I feel like that's. That's my main role because, you know, I have no direct link to uh, ancestors or ancestral knowledge. Um, but I'm in the same position as countless millions, if not billions of people. And so, uh, you know, we have to be able to show that, that this can be done, you know, that we can become people that are solid and grounded and rooted and repair this breach so that we can see the, the fabric of, of culture um, and just, you know, behavior, day-to-day -day habits and behavior that people do stuff on a regular basis and do it together that, that, that constitutes a deep connection, love and bond with, with, with land. So, you know, yeah. it's tentative. And sometimes I think like the progress is so slow, but, but um, nevertheless, I can see, whereas I wouldn't have been able to articulate this like a year and a half ago, um, also, I can see that that's the work. That's, mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the task in hand, you know, that we need yeah. to get on with this work you know, to find out how to rebond and reconnect, yeah. Definitely. And I do think, too, I mean, that's just really beautifully um, said, too, and, like, and, and that feeling of, like, rootlessness and stuff, where, like, at the end of the day, like, I, I really love this. this um, it's a translated quote that I'm sure has, has been across many cultures, but um, in particular, I was hearing it from a San elder that was saying, like, like, it's not that, like, we're going into nature or something, like, we are nature, and so it's, like, as human beings, like, being a part of this, like, circular web, um, like, we, we are a part of the land, whether, like, we, we understand whatever, like, geographic or, like, cultural, like, rootedness or unrootedness like you know whether that's lost or not lost like we all have um you know the right for developing that relationship and that connection and um and yeah and I do think that it is hopeful that like everyone and anyone like for myself like even even though like growing up within like the Ukrainian community here in the states like I feel most at home when I'm in Namibia you know I can't explain it but I just the way people live it's and the way people are and the way that I feel, I feel very at home there. Um, I feel at home in the mountains, like in in Ukraine. Um, but I feel very much at home in Namibia more than anywhere, and I feel very um, uncomfortable every time I'm in the states. Like I feel like there's work to be done, and I'm here for it. But it's it's. It doesn't feel like home and I also don't know what that with like I don't know how to describe it or feel it but um I love the plants here I love people here but like I'm 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 here you know so so that oh, that other really kind of cheesy saying too but it's like um grow where you're planted you know and and um tend to that soil and, and keep developing and and for anyone who is interested though like even knowing like you have some Welsh um within you and and 
a lot of the work that I've that I've been starting to explore more and more but I've also been finding like even with like my friend who's from the Netherlands um and and, and other people as well like like it's sometimes very painful to like look and and start you know talking to family members that like you know maybe there was some rocky disconnection and rocky relationships and like um or like humbly being like like for me going to Ukraine I I'm like I I know I speak like probably like in, in elementary school and everyone's very encouraging no you're speaking Greek keep going keep going you know but like it was it was embarrassing sometimes like not knowing a certain word or or um you know like the way I piece sentences is a little bit different than the way they speak you know so it's a, people understood what I was saying but like I had like my own version <laughs> of, of Ukrainian that people really accommodated to um yeah. but like it, it's it's part of that like getting uncomfortable and and um yeah like I I when I left you know my family like I for me like growing up in this Ukrainian community here like I never wanted to come back and I never like it, it wasn't um the best situation and growing situation in school dynamic like all that for me um and I just you know when I was um when I left for Chicago I just I never thought I'd come back and I think this last year like it was addressing a lot of those painful like habits and and dynamics and um yeah it just it, it and I get that this work is not like not everyone wants to take that on <laughs> but I do think that there there is something to it where it's like well we keep learning we keep um you know learning our languages learning like even with plantain you know like I I you say plantain and healing this wound and I'm like yes I love it and I think of like all the times here in the states you know um you know harvesting plantain but there's also plantain in Europe and and it's again having that connection with and relationship with that one plant you know it, it can follow us th throughout the world where we start feeling like home within the plants themselves um because we have friendships yeah. we have those relationships so um and then it just adds to the toolkit too you know like well we use it for more like topical but like this one wonderful woman that um it's called Podorosh in Ukraine in Ukrainian Podrosh because it's it's um by the road it goes by the road so Droha road Podrosh and um I saw this one woman harvesting elderflower I was very excited because I'm like finally someone's harvesting something and I was and I was in Kiev and um I noticed people in Kiev weren't really making eye contact as much as they were on, on western Ukraine and yeah I came up to her and I was like oh, hi like oh you're harvesting elderflower like I know this plant I know and she looked at me like I was insane but I was like I have my camera I was like can I take a picture I think it's just so great and she was like who are you where are you from like what's going on and after I explained to her a little bit she was like do you want to like have breakfast with me and come walking and I, I was like I have nothing else to do and I was like yeah that sounds great and so we walked and we harvested plantain and then we, she made me a beautiful breakfast um, and, and we ended up um, making cloths out of this plantain, which I, in my mind, like would have never thought to make like a green cloth. Um, and it's a fermented drink, but she, she was taking it more for um, like gut health for herself. And, and mm -hmm. I was having some digestive issues and I was like, oh, like I'd love to like learn how to make this and do this. And so it turned into this like long, like, you know, morning um day where like it's one plant 
and depending on where you are and how these connections go, we just keep adding and, and sharing and, and that's how we learn and grow and mess up and make up and all of that. So. so how did you make, how did, how, did, how, how was the, how was the drink made with the plantain? So this is what was interesting, right? So when we did it together, she gave me the shot of her uh, class, right? And and for me, like I cannot have gluten. And so like traditional class size is usually just like a bread ferment or something like this. Um, and like, I, I can't, I can't have it with, with um, um, a, a debate between celiac or non-celiac uh, sensitivity, but, um, and, she told me that, so when we washed it, it was the plantain and it was sugar and she gave me the shot of it and it tasted so good miles that I was like, there's no way this is, this is all that's in it. Is this like sugar plantain and water? Like, how is this like, you know, she's like, yep, like you go ahead and wash it. Um, you don't want to like chop it up and then you're going to like go ahead and dry it, burp it. Um, and then you taste it and then you could, you could put it in the fridge. So me, when I came back to Chicago, I was like, it was already like fall time, you know, so I had a full harvest of, of plants that were there, which um, to my surprise too, there, there were like culturally salient plants like Kalina, like Viburnum opulus that was growing, um, that was not the high bush cranberry, because I know there's like an ID sometimes between the two, but Viburnum opulus in Chicago, which like blew my mind. But anyways, I, so I was harvesting this plantain and, and I was like okay I'm gonna do it on my own and um I don't know if I didn't put enough sugar I don't know what was what but um it didn't it like started to bubble and it was bubbling so I was doing a lot of like cat sander styles like with sauerkraut after a couple of days and put in pop it in the refrigerator when you like the taste so I liked it but then by the time I think I kept opening it or something but by the time I I was like ready to consume it it kind of just tasted like sugary um cellulose like water and like it didn't taste like how she made it and I'm trying to figure that out again yeah it's tricky like that sometimes you 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 know that the bacteria have all died and it's not live culture anymore and the taste is just flat yeah I've, yeah. I've done that I think I think you probably do have to you have to either drink it quite quickly or um Maybe it's a different sugar too. Maybe um, I don't know if it's like sugar client. I mean, she was using a, a standard like cane, like white sugar, and and that's what I got. It's um, also it's also one one of the factors that 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 because I I've done this um, fermentation with birch sap, mm -hmm. which normally I do it in um, in the spring, but um, one thing or another. I needed to, to to do it for the video course I'm doing, um, and we hadn't done it. We hadn't done the video in the spring, mm -hmm. so I had this frozen birch sap, mm -hmm. which I defrosted and then did it with. I mean, actually with slightly different materials again because it's not the spring. Mm -hmm. But anyway, this this stuff went off, which I've never known it to do it like mm -hmm. in a, in just a kilner jar. So I think when you defrosted it, well, no, the the birch sap was fine, but but the ferment which I did and some of them were. Oh with the same as you said, like adding sugar, like herbs and sugar, some not, mm -hmm. some no sugar, some we add, added sugar to feed it, increase the bacteria count and stuff. Um, but this stuff went off just in the kilner jar um, and, and that would have been the middle of summer. So it just, it just like wherever you were in, um, in Ukraine, you, you, it's, it's almost like you'd have to be there to do the same as she's doing because otherwise, it's different temperature. I mean, mainly temperature. It could be other factors, but but 
you know, the, what the room temperature is for those first few days might be critical. Yeah. I don't know. And it was a season too. I mean, I was there um, in late spring and then throughout the summer. And then by the time I came back to the States, I mean, it was already, I mean, I was fermenting it in like October or something like that. So, I mean, I know the weather changed, but I, I am determined to try it again. If I, if I end up getting it, I'll, I'll let you know. But if you end up playing around with it too, if you figure it out, I, know, I recognize it might also be different where you're at versus where I'm at now too, but just to get more ideas of, of um, I, I will try it again because I kid you not it was the best I, I was so surprised with how delicious it was it was incredibly yeah. fizzy and like bright and it, it just it was I was so happy and it was it was incredible and mine was definitely flat and like <laughs> but it was fizzy at one point I mean maybe the trick is just to yeah. when it's at that point just drink it and make yourself yeah. another for yeah. two days time maybe i won't always open it and check it too like because maybe maybe it's not necessary to burp it as well much as like... well i think there's burping it and opening it isn't it so if you if you just burp it to let the gas out then you haven't let anything in whereas if you open it because yeah. <laughs> because that's the point when you when you burp it to let the gas out the, the headspace above the uh the liquid is 100 percent carbon dioxide mm -hmm. as soon as you mm -hmm. open it you're letting oxygen in so it can can have the um well, can I ask you though, how you actually ferment? So like the way I was doing in my, in my brain, maybe it was totally not correct where I was like, well, I was burping it. It was just like, like I was just in regular standard mason jar, not the one with the. Um, ah, see, yeah. I think Kilner jars are much, much better just because you've, okay. you've got that seal. And as soon as you let the pressure off, mm -hmm. you've got this thing where you can gradually let the pressure off. And that mm -hmm. means that the, the gas can come out, okay. but then you immediately seal it again. And, and there you go, you've got you've got that anaerobic condition because there's only carbon dioxide in there. Mm -hmm. But with one where you've actually got to take the lid off, mm -hmm. it, I would say that's that's less of a reliable method, yeah. Yeah, it was a definite, like, I don't know, it, it wasn't a very precise yeah. <laughs> way of doing it, but I'll definitely, uh, this season, I'll, I'll look into investing into some different um, proper, like, canning equipment so I could I could try it again. And, and I think kilner jars are just the absolute... They're the way forward with with uh, fermenting. Whether you're doing liquid or solid stuff, it's just because because like all this sand or cat stuff, where you've got to get a layer of water over the top, mm -hmm. you just don't need to do that in a kilner jar. Yeah. As long as you've got good conditions to get the fermentation going, as soon as you burped mm -hmm. it once, mm -hmm. the gas at the top is doing the same job as the as the liquid does in 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 the sand or cats method. So you well, just don't need to do it. Obviously, it's a different matter once it's ready. Yeah. Then probably put it in smaller jars, put it in the fridge, etc. But um, yeah, for that That's actual, she, did. she was like bottling them and then like yeah. opened them. Yeah. <sighs> anyway, yeah. how how delightful for you to be able to get that whole day with this lady just because you, you and she's initially quite sort of unwilling to talk to you. That's really funny. Yes, she was very standoffish, but I think it again kind of um, you know was a little bit of a nod to like the trauma that happened in Ukraine as well, and and. Uh, just with the wars and stuff and those are all the stories that I grew up with and I mean it's also kind of I don't know how weird or not it is some like foreigner that like, <laughs> like broken Ukrainian is like hi like you know you're harvesting I'd love to just like take photos of you and like you know obviously that's just you know I'd also be like who are you and like it took her a minute um but I, once I was like no my family's from Ukraine and like I'm just so happy to be here and like I think she 
you know, yeah. warmed up to me. <laughs> yeah, but, sounds like she did. Yeah, yeah, it's just great, you know, and I actually, um, I have her granddaughter's uh, WhatsApp number too, so I'll probably shoot her a message and send them all holiday uh, greetings, and maybe I can get a review on that, on that recipe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I've got a similar one with, with when I went to Lebanon, I, I was mm-hmm. introduced to a lady who knew how to uh, turn um, arum maculatum leaves into something that doesn't poison you <laughs> you know do you know that plant what's what's the common name of it i don't know well it's lords and ladies or cuckoo pint in england but it's it, they're full of raphides like the uh the um they're full of calcium oxalate crystals okay. so that they're, they're things that crop up in quite a lot of things and, and what's these, the scientific uh, name of it again let me see if i can look arum arum maculatum i think uh i think cassava is another one member of that family and you have to get the the calcium oxalate out of that well, this looks like a jack in the pulpit or something like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 jack in the pulpit. Is that yeah, what it is? Okay. Yeah. Cool. Oh my gosh, those are, I had no idea those are edible. <laughs> yeah, it's a, well, a friend of mine had poisoned himself with it and he said, oh, you know, the Armenian yeah. community know how to make this edible. I said, really? I've been trying to find that for years. So he takes me around to this lady's house and we, we do all this stuff, chopping it finely, it involved bulgur wheat yogurt and getting it to fermentation temperature um, overnight and then suddenly yeah you put it in your mouth and it doesn't doesn't burn you anymore because was it, was it did it taste nice though was yeah, it, like- it tasted good but but the only the only issue i've got with it is i tried eating that plant every which way because mm-hmm. i kept hearing these partial accounts of how people here or people there rendered mm-hmm. it edible and none of it worked so you keep putting this thing in your mouth and it burns you and you spit oh it out God. and you just think oh, i'm such a sucker keep believing these accounts you know with none of which are true <laughs> But the thing is, I have eaten it boiled, just the leaves boiled. And I have to say that it's it's the most delicious green leaf. Really? That I've ever tasted. It's 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 yeah. it's just it's sweet, it's it's not it, it's just it's just lovely, but you cannot swallow it. you you could die if you did. Oh, if it's but obviously I'm putting it in my mouth thinking that it's it's you know, I had an account, you just boil it as long as it's in a metal pan, something to do with mm-hmm. it being metal, I don't know, steel or something total nonsense that didn't work at all but you see comparing that with the version that's gone through this complicated process of finely sliced very finely chiffonaded and 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 then um cooked with bulgur rice and then you add bulgur wheat and then you add yogurt when it's cooled down enough and you keep it Mm -hmm. at that yogurt making temperature and overnight it either coats the the uh the these crystals Mm-hmm. in some kind of mucilaginous substance that means they can't do what they do mm-hmm. so what they do is they pierce you and and, and they've got uh, protease on them and 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 that is uh, the enzyme that breaks down protein so it's digesting mm-hmm. you and it hurts yeah um <laughs> so either they're covering that with some sort of mucilage or they're actually breaking down these the, the crystals and the enzyme I don't know mm-hmm. which, and I'd love to get a lab to look at it. And as far as I'm aware, no lab has. So wow. it's a thing to do. But anyway, I go home. So no, so the point is, it didn't taste nearly as nice as just the boiled leaves, <laughs> unfortunately, mm-hmm. after all of that. But uh, it did mean that the, the Armenian community there and in Turkey and, and elsewhere, this green leaf that comes through first in the year, mm-hmm. they can make use of it. That's why mm-hmm. they figured this out, because they can make use mm-hmm. of it. But I, get, I went home and tried this thing out. And I had, again, the lady's number, and, and I phoned her every year. 
asking her, but I never did manage to do it successfully. Um, but but yeah. I kept ringing her every year going, okay, I did this, I did that. Oh, well, maybe you should try it. And yeah, but I should <laughs> persevere, but I haven't, I've given up. But yeah. Yes, um, you will figure it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'll, I'll work on it again. I mean, I guess what will motivate me is knowing that we've got a lab that will look at it. If we, if we, if we had a, a research project where someone was willing to look at it, then I'd get on oh, the phone to this lady again and yeah. Maybe it's worthwhile to even reaching out um, to, to the ethnobotany uh, program at the University of Kent. Because They're not there's a... very scientific though, are they? Sorry, ethnobotany department at the they, university. They, they, they do have though, um, do they have a lab? You know, it's hard to, to, to speak towards everything that they have or have. don't have. But even just getting you maybe connected with some of the folks there might might know people in London or something like that. Like the web of connections might be able to yeah. connect you. Yeah, I should do another round. I've, I've, I'm a bit weary of reaching out to, 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 to because it always boils down. Oh, yeah. So have you got some research funding? And, okay, no, I don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But right now. You never got, know. Maybe, maybe yeah. sometime. Well, I have got a thing with, with the University of Reading at the moment. We're looking at hogweed, looking at flavor chemicals in hogweed. Cool. And... And we're also looking at whether hogweed takes up heavy metals from by the side of the road. My guess is it doesn't because another study from the University of Berkeley found that fennel doesn't because it's in the same family. Mm -hmm. I'm extrapolating that maybe the hogweed doesn't either, but we'll know in, in a few days' time. They've just they've just had it and looked at it. But um, anyway, um, I'll tell you what I'd like to, to know more about, and that's your time with the sand people especially um yeah since yeah. you think in Namibia I mean yeah I mean oh, it's incredible and I still feel like it's a constant longing to to be able to um go back and and spend more time and work with them further but um so I can tell you some some uh, drama stories, if you would like, because I think it's also very reflective of a lot of things happening in the States, but also or ha what have happened. And, and you know, it, it feels like almost this weird time capsule. And um, yeah, I don't, I like to all the listeners out there, <laughs> get ready. <right. laughs> no, but there, there's definitely a lot of heartbreak, you know. But so, so I was in Namibia. Um, I was, I was granted a, a Fulbright grant, which was very, um, yeah, just ecstatic and elated to be able to receive funding for a year to be able to 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 travel and spend a longer period of time abroad. And I was looking, I was working with different permaculture sites um, there, and and I was primarily in Fobabes in Namibia, and and um, there was an organization called Damarman Farming Cooperative, and so I was basically what I was doing. I I come from an arts background, and so I as um, using different uh, kind of like quote unquote waste stream materials to create cellulose fiber and natural dyes um, for less toxic, um, depending on obviously species, but less toxic uh, art materials to help to stimulate some local economies. So that, that was the reason why I was there and, and it wow. was incredible. Yeah. It was just incredible. But the story started when, when I was in Hobabis and my partnering organization dropped me off in a, in a is an informal uh, settlement, a township, and it's primarily Herero, Herero land. So if you if you look at the map of Namibia, Vintuk is kind of in central, and then Hobabis is is spanning closer to Botswana. And um, and he dropped me off, and then I just didn't hear from him for like almost two and a half weeks. 
and I tried calling him and everything so if you can imagine like being dropped off <laughs> in this like it, it, it was a community that like I didn't speak Cochihilero. I mean I learned you know like, you know just good morning good mornings and like my host you know who wrote me letters of affiliation to be able to come and work with them just was like nope see you and I, I was like oh my god is it personal he doesn't like me and I don't know you don't know this like but I kept going back to the the plan where I'm like well while I'm here let's look around and it's the Kalahari desert right so it's sand it was probably about like a 45 minute walk into town so I mean I was directionless I was dropped off at night so I was like it was the most amazing starry sky you could ever imagine but like other than that I'm like I have no idea what I'm doing here and like the next morning I woke up the water in the well wasn't working so like I'm like I have no water I don't know where I am <laughs> you know like a very proper dumb American at this moment <laughs> and um it was really leaning into people and and you know figuring it out and I learned a lot about myself a lot about boundaries a lot about all these things and and after that two-week span um you know, he dropped off an Australian couple <laughs> who was wanting an experience. Uh, they're on their honeymoon. And, and so this random, you know, this is all of a sudden this Australian couple. And during this time, um, I was like, hey, like, like, what's going on? You know, like, like, I want to help. I want to see the site that I was supposed to be working on. And like, you know, like, I want to learn more about it. And you went MIA on me, like, what's going on? You know, and then he's like, don't worry, don't worry, they get to know the community, just, you know, relax, you have time, and I'm like, I don't have time, I'm on a grant, I gotta, and I, I learned, I learned African, proper African time, <laughs> um, but anyway, so he was like, hey, show up tomorrow morning, do you want to drop off the sun to um, a resettlement farm, it's with, it, I, you tell me, is it okay to, I'm, I'm like, I'm not sure if I should name organizations, I don't know how much trouble or not this goes into, but I'm not sure how many people actually like like internationally listen to this podcast. Um, not a lot of people in Africa, but we we do have a few. Yeah. Well, here's the truth. <laughs> it, I I ended up. Um, it was the Desert Research Foundation, and um, yeah, my my friend who was working there at the time, which I I didn't know, but like I showed up the next morning. It was in a it was in a car and a and, and a truck and. Um, there was a lot of elders, um, San elders and, and, and children and women. And so, again, culturally coming from like a Ukrainian um, community uh, that, that is more patriarchal, uh, but also like, I mean, I was always like either the, a child or the guest. So we sit in the back and anytime we have a guest or something like they do sit up front, which I could see that um, why they were like, in, like my friend who was working there was like, no, you sit in front. But for me, I was like, no, no, I could sit in back when there's, when there's an elder, when there's an elder, I'm like, they should be up front. Like I, there's so much room up here. I don't need all this room. And like, and then the whole truck in the back was just filled with mothers and their babies. And, and um, she's like, no, no, they're fine. And it's like, it, for me, it was kind of like, oh, like, but at the right. same time, people really. Hard to do it. Yeah. And like to have, like, he was like, here's the white woman from America sitting in the front of the, of the Bucky, <laughs> like, you know, while there's like families and like children and, and older people like in the back, like shoved in. And I, I just was incredibly uncomfortable. Um, but I was like, okay, like we're going. And, and my friend, she was, um, or she, uh, she was, or she 
And so Shivamba went to like, if a stereotypically, she's one of the strongest people I know, just like she, she is very much in tune with like her body and centered and, you know, will, will speak her mind. And for me, again, like learned a lot from her. Um, but we're driving to this resettlement farm, which very much echoes um, reservations, um, and Native American reservations here in the States, which I, I also spent time in um, a few years before I went to Namibia. And um, yeah, the, basically there was no road and and it was it's a lot of sand. So it was very tall. If you can imagine driving through like two and a half, three feet of, of deep Kalahari sand and um, like motion sickness were just bumping around everywhere. And, and um, my now friend, you know, she was a very uh, skilled driver, you know, to, to be able to navigate through this. And it was, it was a couple hours um, in this, in this car and in sand. And the first couple minutes I was in the car, um, there was this huge argument and it was between the elder um, Opal and my friend. And they did it all in English. And I had no idea, like, like, what was I literally just showed up and I'm like hi I'm here <laughs> like, and they they argued in English and he was saying um you know the the harvest was late that year and it was my this my friend's fault um and then she very much like are you kidding me like I don't have to be doing this I don't have to be driving you all the way over here like you know I almost lost my life that day like how dare you say that you know and like and then she's, you know, you're just drinking your money away. Like, what are you doing in Hobavis anyways? Like, you're just drinking. And and he's like, no, like our harvest is late and it's because of you. And so again, like, you know, just sitting there like, oh my God, like what's going on, you know? And and like, you guys are the sun, you know? Like in the very, again, stereotypical, like, you know, notions of, of like, don't, like, your hunter gatherer community like you don't you don't know like you know like different like foods and stuff but then it's like again very ignorant at the time where like there's so many regulations of um access to land and movement that you know was deeply ingrained within um this community and culture and not everyone wants to do that either you know not everyone sees that as their way forward they they you know people want also to live in towns and live in other places so like again who am I to say how people should live but this was the first instance that really started opening my eyes and um you know we, we dropped um the community off and you could see that there was there was a like corn and, and things growing and um it was late in the season so there wasn't you know any harvesting and, and they were concerned you know because obviously the drought in Namibia as well and I just really didn't understand like like why so Christy what happened was that she was she had her, um, she was dropping off seeds to the community. And one time when she was driving, she flipped the car. And so she went to the hospital and the seeds were late. And for me, I was like, again, just like, don't, I don't understand. Like, why don't like you just harvest, you know, the seeds from, from the year, like previously, you know, and, and again, being ignorant to a lot of things, like, you know, we dropped community members off and I, I asked my friend, you know, like, if it's helpful like I'm happy to do like a seed saving workshop or something like I don't understand why you know like people are in this weird dynamic where it's this codependent like relationship where people are really kind of like bitter towards the sun that they always want things but at the same time like why like why don't like tool like why aren't there like tools that are like that are used and access and they could be 
a really interesting like circular economy within it. Like, why is this, there's this dynamic and the car got really quiet and then it just dawned on me. And I was like, oh, I was like, these are Monsanto seeds, aren't they, Christy? And she was like, yeah, like, oh, shit. and that's again, I got fucking pissed, right? I was just like, why is this organization? It's illegal in Namibia to have GMOs within the country. This prestigious organization got funding and are giving vulnerable communities within the Kalahari Desert, within resettlement farms, Monsanto seeds, and, and then be like, here, like, how okay, is that so, so now, now I'm very happy to tell this story. So let's let's spell it out loud and clear who these scumbags are. Who, what, are what are these people called again? The, the so desert, it was the Desert Research Foundation. And wow. yeah, and it's a huge research organization. And what's really like, gets me is that like when this happened like so my friend no longer works there i started or like contacting there's this whole like non-gmo group in vindhook in the city right then you have a city like the city people that are like yeah we're really into you know um we're really into um you know non-gmos here want to protect that great great um and i'm like hey like this is happening in in this very remote area and no one miles no one wanted to take it on everyone was telling me that i was mistaken and i was like i'm not mistaken like it's right here a few years later it was still gnawing at me because that moment literally changed my life and literally is why i'm doing what i do now is is that argument in the car <laughs> and then like watching things unfold and i'm like why can't people just be connected with the, their lives and with the land and the way that they relate to the land and like right they get everything with profit and with larger hub organizations and getting funding from europe and getting funding from other areas to do very specific research very specific programming very specific you know like you know gmos are going to save the world and then there's not necessarily anything like like i'm not i'm not countering that like there there is interesting research and and potential benefits to to different types of um, seed modification like I, I can I can agree that there's different perspectives on that but in my opinion like giving a marginalized community like I don't want to put like pesticides like all over my food and then like consume it that's not that's all not I know okay. is that all I know is that the NGOs that, that advocate for the poor mm -hmm. none of them are pro GMO that to me that answers it well if, if this is exactly. all such a good idea and it isn't just greedy people mm -hmm. being greedy, then how come the people that, that work yeah. feeding hungry people and so on, how come they're not for it? They're not for it. But Miles, seriously, like there was another organization that again, when I was working in the arts and I was like, great, like while I'm here, I would love to connect with like your artist communities to be able to highlight the beautiful like artwork that, that a lot of African artists like, like grow. And it was an affiliation with another garden and they're saying that like we're gardening we're feeding people and i'm like great so i ended up later in the year i was up in gambia i met with this organization and i was pissed because it was again gmos everywhere and so again i'm like trying to put my non-judgment glasses on and i'm just like wanting to hear from people like how has this been for you you know like have have you found success with it is this enjoyable like is this what you want to eat like you know like what's what's what and like there was mixed reviews on it all. Um, the sun within this area, like 
they were struggling because they were getting resources that were like, here's the seeds from our organization, from this funding. Okay, something went wrong with literally like a car flipping and, you know, people's lives were, were shifted and missed. And at the same time, like when it comes to foraging, when it comes to perennial foods, when it comes to movement and all this, it's, it's looked down upon and it's shameful. And it's not only shameful there, like it's shameful, like, you know, at times like in Europe, in Ukraine, in Eastern Europe at times, even though it's so culturally tied, shameful here where like my parents, like, why would you like go outside and eat that? Like, we're good. We'll go to the store that's like imported from Europe or imports, you know? And so it's like, it was the beginning to a, like a whole eye-opening like clusterfuck. Um, and since then, like, and so, so by the end of that, like Opal, the, the, elder you know he just asked me straight out like and you like what are you gonna do for the sun and I was just like at the time like what am I gonna do you know like I I don't have enough money to like you know and I just, I just literally I was like I will listen to like what you have to say and I will help amplify your voice as much as possible and he he shook his head like okay and then that that was that years later I ended up connecting then to into Bobwada. So we're talking about another clusterfuck when it comes to the sun, um, it's particular in Namibia. In Bobwada, it's a national forest. It's There's a lot of political upheaval within the area, um, but the Kwe, um, the sun Kwe, um, live within this area. And I went up there with um, a permaculture group um, that I'm friends with, a Yulolo permaculture initiative. We just we went up mainly just to to meet people. Um, we would like to collaborate with folks and and be able to start again expanding these conversations of like, why is everyone putting up a garden? Gardens are great, you know, they're fantastic. But what about the perennial foods? What about like the culturally salient traditional foods that like are amazing? And like, why is there such shame affiliated with harvesting and and you know obtaining these foods? And so. While everyone's like, ah, we want to be in the city. I'm like, ah, I want to go back. I want to go back. You know, I want to go back to the land. And um, where's that happy medium? And so right now what's happening in Bovada, from my understanding, right? Like you have the government selling off uh, property and lands. I'm sure folks have heard about Recon Africa, the Canadian organization drilling within the Okavango Delta, which is the largest conservation area of the entire <laughs> region. And right in the middle of it, you have the Quay, the Quay who have their homes and, and their livelihoods there who are marginalized as well, who, you know, do not have as much like, like weight and political say within a lot of like their needs. And, and yet they survive and yet they're still there and yet they're still like, you know, hold that traditional knowledge and they still harvest and they still are willing to share with with foreigners like me you know like what it is that you know like what it is that they they do and how they live with the land and 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 what they need as well you know like right now like i'm working we ended up fundraising because people were like we need computers so that we can like actually communicate with people like yes we're san yes we live with the land but like we have no way of making money right now like you know like but with a computer we could actually like send documents and and like you know my kid could go to school and he could actually type on side like this it's a technological world and like people have cell phones so like 
yeah, I, I still keep in touch with my, with my Kuei friends, you know, and like, we talk about it and like, right now, like, it's like, okay, great, let's see if we could get five computers. So great, like, is already able to, to um, get two computers donated, some people are giving money for like refurbished ones, but like, all of that's going just so we can, we can continue these conversations, we can continue like sharing. And sometimes it's not about like harvesting, you know, from the bush, like, sometimes it's as practical as like, we are living in a capitalistic world and and society and while it may be like the late stages of capitalism like these are real issues when people don't have access and their voices aren't heard and they they have this connection with the land and yet it's almost like they're blanketed of like hush you know we're just gonna put you away in this corner yeah um, i mean so so what how does that look um for you finding ways to do that you know like when you said to this guy I'll listen and I'll amplify your voice yeah what what can you what can you see that that will enable you to to to, to fulfill that yeah. well some of it has been like listening right just listening in general because it's a, yeah. it's an incredibly complex area for me what I took away from it initially was just like well why is there such a stigma with foraging and with this connection like very particular hunter-gatherer like connection and so when I came back to Chicago that was my first my first thing of like well like what if this became accessible to people and not like you know and I get now it's like it's probably we've probably seen this earlier on too like with trending and stuff too where it's, it's becoming popularized but also kind of um you know, for folks with more finances, you know, who are interested in that and, and oftentimes like from European descendants, you know, or, or from, from Europe, white, white Americans, white Europeans, you know, are, oh, I'm curious about, it. I didn't know this. Mm -hmm. So I do see like it becoming popular and being able to still share these stories, right, about folks who like, it's uncool if the son do it, but it's cool if I do it, you know, as, as a white American, like we're, you know, definitely like a stigma, but if there are some like portals of connection to be able for people to donate finances, donate, um, you know, towards programs that the Quay like collaboratively like develop and build. Um, for myself, like my next step is when I'm able to get back to Namibia, like I've been talking with different folks in the Quay to be able to create video series um, that will be able to share stories, but also like, again, like helping them set up different financial like streams and portals of like, like, let's talk about bank accounts, guys. Let's talk about like how you want to make money. And like, is it possible for you to make money like while still like living closely with the land you know like do you want to be a tour guide okay great like how can we connect you this way this way um like no like you want to you want to live within your homeland here great like let's look at different types of um you know value added products like what are my resources that i could either promote or i can um you know help connect whether it's in in the city or elsewhere okay one um one of my friends you know he wants to create like a chicken farm okay like why a chicken farm? like what are the chickens going to eat like is there like a tie within the exact ecosystem what research has been done you know in terms of land restoration that i can funnel through and, and help yeah. connect so that's kind of where i see right now is like really i'm still listening because i don't have all the answers but a couple of ideas is really like well 
if I'm not physically there, like how can I help? It's literally funneling resources. Yeah. Um, the second way is like when I am there, like being able to to literally just put the spotlight on on people and um, on these stories, which is what I'm starting in 2022. Haha. <laughs> All right. Well, lovely to talk to you, Nina. And Thank I'm you. sure we'll talk again before too long. Yeah. Yes, please. Thank you so much, Miles. Happy yeah. holidays. Bye. Bye now.